0: Chapter eight of Industrial Biography Iron Workers and Tool by Samuel Smiles This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall The Scotch Iron Manufacture. dr Roebuck, David Mushet. Were public benefactors to be allowed to pass away like hewers of wood and drawers of water without commemoration? genius and enterprise would be deprived of their most coveted distinction. Sir Henry Englefield The account given of Dr. Roebuck in a cyclopaedia of biography recently published in Glasgow runs as follows. Roebuck John, a physician and experimental chemist, born at Sheffield, 1718, died after ruining himself by his projects, 1794. Such is the short shrift which the man receives who fails. Had Dr. Roebuck wholly succeeded in his projects, he would probably have been esteemed as among the greatest of Scotland's benefactors. Yet his life was not altogether a failure, as we think will sufficiently appear from the following brief account of his labours. At the beginning of the last century, John Roebuck's father carried on the manufacture of cutlery at Sheffield, in the course of which he realized a competency. He intended his son to follow his own business, but the youth was irresistibly attracted to scientific pursuits, in which his father liberally encouraged him, and he was placed first under the care of Dr. Doddridge at Northampton, and afterwards at the University of Edinburgh, where he applied himself to the study of medicine, and especially of chemistry which was then attracting considerable attention at the principal seats of learning in Scotland. While residing at Edinburgh, young Roebuck contracted many intimate friendships with men who afterwards became eminent in literature, such as Hume and Robertson the historians, and the circumstances supposed to have contributed not a little to his partiality in favour of Scotland, and his afterwards selecting it as the field for his industrial operations. After graduating as a physician at Leyden, Roebuck returned to England, and settled at Birmingham in the year 1745, for the purpose of practising his profession. Birmingham was then a principal seat of the metal manufacture, and its mechanics were reputed to be among the most skilled in Britain. Dr. Roebuck's attention was early drawn to the scarcity and dearness of the material in which the mechanics worked, and he sought, by experiment, to devise some method of smelting iron otherwise than by means of charcoal. He had a laboratory fitted up in his house for the purpose of prosecuting his inquiries, and there he spent every minute that he could spare from his professional labours. It was thus that he invented the process of smelting iron by means of pit-coal, which he afterwards embodied in the patent, hereafter to be referred to. And at the same time he invented new methods of refining gold and silver. And of employing them in the arts, which proved of great practical value to the Birmingham tradesmen, who made extensive use of them in their various processes of manufacture. Dr. Roebuck's inquiries had an almost exclusively practical direction, and in pursuing them his main object was to render them subservient to the improvement of the industrial arts. Thus he sought to devise more economical methods of producing the various chemicals used in the Birmingham trade, such as ammonia, sublimate, and several of the acids, and his success was such as to induce him to erect a large laboratory for their manufacture, which was conducted with complete success by his friend Mr. Garbutt. Among his inventions of this character was the modern process of manufacturing vitriolic acid in leaden vessels in large quantities, instead of in glass vessels in small quantities, as formerly practised. His success led him to consider the project of establishing a manufactory for the purpose of producing oil of vitriol on a large scale, and having given up his practice as a physician, he resolved, with his partner Mr. Garbutt, to establish the proposed works in the neighbourhood of Edinburgh. He removed to Scotland with that object, and began the manufacture of vitriol at Prestapans in the year 1749. The enterprise proved eminently lucrative, And encouraged by his success, Roebuck proceeded to strike out new branches of manufacture. He started a pottery for making white and brownware, which eventually became established, and the manufacture exists in the same neighbourhood to this day. The next enterprise in which he became engaged was one of still greater importance, though it proved eminently unfortunate in its results as concerned himself. While living at Prestapans, he made the friendship of Mr. William Cadell of Cockenzie, a gentleman who had for some time been earnestly intent on developing the industry of Scotland, then in a very backward condition. Mr. Cadell had tried, without success, to establish a manufactory of iron, and though he had heretofore failed, he hoped that with the aid of Dr. Roebuck he might yet succeed. The doctor listened to his suggestions with interest and embraced the proposed enterprise with zeal. He immediately proceeded to organize a company in which he was joined by a number of his friends and relatives. His next step was to select a site for the intended works, and make the necessary arrangements for beginning the manufacture of iron. After carefully examining the country on both sides of the Forth, he at length made a choice of a site on the banks of the River Carron in Stirlingshire, where there was an abundant supply of water and an inexhaustible supply of iron, coal, and limestone in the immediate neighbourhood, and there Dr. Roebuck planted the first ironworks in Scotland. In order to carry them on with the best chances of success, he brought a large number of skilled workmen from England, who formed a nucleus of industry at Carron, where their example and improved methods of working served to train the native labourers in their art. At a subsequent period Mr. Cadell of Carron Park also brought a number of skilled English nail-makers into Scotland, and settled them in the village of Camelon, where by teaching others the business has become handed down to the present day. The first furnace was blown at Caron on the first day of January 1760, and in the course of the same year the Caron ironworks turned out 1,500 tons of iron, then the whole annual produce of Scotland. Other furnaces were shortly after erected on improved plans, and the production steadily increased. Dr. Robach was indefatigable in his endeavours to improve the manufacture, and he was one of the first, as we have said, to revive the use of pit-coal in refining the ore, as appears from his patent of 1762. He there describes his new process as follows. I melt pig, or any kind of cast-iron, in a hearth heated with pit-coal by the blast of bellows, and work the metal until it is reduced to nature, which I take out of the fire and separate to pieces. Then I take the metal thus reduced to nature, and expose it to the action of a hollow pit-coal fire, heated by the blast of bellows until it is reduced to a loop, which I draw out under a common forge-hammer into bar-iron. This method of manufacture was followed with success though for some time, as indeed to this day, the principal production of the Caron ironworks was castings, for which the peculiar quality of the Scotch iron admirably adapts it. The well-known carronades, or smashers as they were named, were cast in large numbers at the Caron ironworks. To increase the power of his blowing apparatus, Dr. Roebuck called to his aid the celebrated Mr. Smeaton, the engineer, who contrived and erected for him at Caron, the most perfect apparatus of the kind then in existence. It may also be added that out of the Caron Enterprise, in a great measure, sprang the Forth and Clyde Canal, the first artificial navigation in Scotland. The Carron Company, with a view to securing an improved communication with Glasgow, themselves surveyed a line which was only given up in consequence of the determined opposition of the landowners but the project was again revived through their means, and was eventually carried out after the designs of Smeaton and Brindley. While the Carron Foundry was pursuing a career of safe prosperity, Dr. Roebuck's enterprise led him to embark in coal-mining, with the object of securing an improved supply of fuel for the ironworks. He became the lessee of the Duke of Hamilton's extensive coal-mines at Burrestone as well as of the salt-pans which were connected with them. The mansion of Kinneil went with the lease, and there dr Roebuck and his family took up their abode. Kinneil House was formerly a country seat of the Dukes of Hamilton, and to this day a stately old mansion, reminding one of a French chateau. Its situation is of remarkable beauty, its windows overlooking the broad expanse of the Firth of Forth, and commanding an extensive view of the country along its northern shores. The place has become in a measure classical. Kinneil House having been inhabited since Dr. Roebuck's time by Dugald Stewart, who there wrote his philosophical essays. When Dr. Roebuck began to sink for coal at the new mines, he found it necessary to erect pumping machinery of the most powerful kind that could be contrived, in order to keep the mines clear of water. For this purpose, the Newcomen engine, in its then state, was found insufficient, and when Dr. Roebuck's friend, Professor Black of Edinburgh, informed him of a young man of his acquaintance, a mathematical instrument-maker at Glasgow, having invented a steam-engine calculated to work with increased power, speed, and economy compared with Newcomen's. Dr. Roebuck was much interested, and shortly after entered into a correspondence with James Watt, the mathematical instrument-maker aforesaid, on the subject. The doctor urged that Watt, who up to that time had confined himself to models, should come over to Keneal House, and proceed to erect a working engine in one of the outbuildings. The English workman whom he had brought to the Caron Works would, he justly thought, give Watt a better chance of success with his engine than if made by the clumsy whitesmiths and blacksmiths of Glasgow, quite unaccustomed as they were to first-class work. And he proposed himself to cast the cylinders at Caron, previous to Watt's intended visit to him at Keneal. Watt paid his promised visit in May 1768, and Roebuck was by this time so much interested in the invention that the subject of his becoming a partner with Watt, with the subject of introducing the engine into general use, was seriously discussed. Watt had been labouring at his invention for several years, contending with many difficulties, but especially the main difficulty of limited means. He had borrowed considerable sums of money from Dr. Black to enable him to prosecute his experiments, and he felt the debt to hang like a millstone round his neck. Watt was a sickly fragile man, and a constant sufferer from violent headaches. Besides, he was by nature timid, desponding, painfully anxious, and easily cast down by failure. Indeed, he was more than once on the point of abandoning his invention in despair, On the other hand, Dr. Roebuck was accustomed to great enterprises, a bold and undaunted man, and disregardful of expense when he saw before him a reasonable prospect of success. His reputation as a practical chemist and philosopher, and his success as the founder of the Prestopans Chemical Works and of the Caron Iron Works, justified the friends of Watt in thinking that he was, of all men, the best calculated to help him at this juncture, and hence they sought to bring about a more intimate connection between the two. The result was that Dr. Roebuck eventually became a partner to the extent of two-thirds of the invention, took upon him the debt owing by Watt to Dr. Black, amounting to about £1,200, and undertook to find the requisite money to protect the invention by means of a patent. The necessary steps were taken accordingly, and the patent right was secured by the beginning of 1769, though the perfecting of his model cost Watt much further anxiety and study. It was necessary for Watt occasionally to reside with Dr. Roebuck at Keneal House, while erecting his first engine there. It had been originally intended to erect it in the neighbouring town of Borstenes, but as there might be prying eyes there, and Watt wished to do his work in privacy, determined not to puff, he at length fixed upon an outhouse still standing, close behind the mansion, by the burnside in the glen, where there was an abundance of water and secure privacy. Watt's extreme diffidence was often the subject of remark at Dr. Roebuck's fireside. To the doctor his anxiety seemed quite painful, and he was very much disposed to despond under the apparently trivial difficulties. Roebuck's hopeful nature was his mainstay throughout. Watt himself was ready enough to admit this, for, writing to his friend Dr. Small, he once said, I have met with many disappointments, and I must have sunk under the burden of them if I had not been supported by the friendship of Dr. Roebuck. But more serious troubles were rapidly accumulating upon Dr. Roebuck himself, and it was he, and not Watt, that sank under the burden. The progress of Watt's engine was but slow, and long before it could be applied to the pumping of Roebuck's mines, The difficulties of the undertaking on which he had entered into overwhelmed him. The opening out of the principal coal involved a very heavy outlay, extending over many years, during which he sank not only his own, but his wife's fortune, and, what distressed him most of all, large sums borrowed from his relatives and friends, which he was unable to repay. The consequence was that he was eventually under the necessity of withdrawing his capital from the refining works at Birmingham, and the vitriol works at Prestapance. At the same time he transferred to Mr. Bolton of Soho his entire interest in Watts' steam-engine, the value of which, by the way, was thought so small that it was not even included among his assets. Roebuck's creditors not estimating it as worth one farthing, Watt sincerely deplored his partner's misfortunes, but could not help him. "'He has been a most sincere and generous friend,' said Watt, "'and is a truly worthy man. And again, my heart bleeds for him, but I can do nothing to help him. I have stuck by him till I have much hurt myself. I can do so no longer. My family calls for my care to provide for them.' The later years of Dr. Roebuck's life were spent in comparative obscurity, and he died in 1794, in his seventy-sixth year. He lived to witness the success of the steam engine, the opening up of the Burrstoness coal, and the rapid extension of the Scotch iron trade, though he shared in the prosperity of neither of those branches of industry. He had been working ahead of his age, and he suffered for it. He fell in the breach at the critical moment, and more fortunate men marched over his body into the fortress which his enterprise and valour had mainly contributed to win. Before his great undertaking of the Carron works, Scotland was entirely dependent upon other countries for its supply of iron. In 1760, the first year of its operation, the whole produce was 1,500 tonnes. In the course of time other iron works were erected at Clyde Clough, Muirkirk and Devon, the managers and overseers of which, as well as the workmen, had mostly received their training and experience at Carron, until at length the iron trade of Scotland has assumed such a magnitude that its manufacturers are enabled to export to England and other countries upwards of five hundred thousand tons a year. How different this state of things from the time when raids were made across the border for The purpose of obtaining a store of iron plunder to be carried back into Scotland. The extraordinary expansion of the Scotch iron trade of late years has been mainly due to the discovery by David Mushet of the Blackband Ironstone in 1801 and the invention of the Hot Blast by James Beaumont Nielsen in 1828. David Mushet was born at Dalkeith near Edinburgh in 1772. Like other members of his family, he was brought up to metal-founding. At the age of nineteen, he joined the staff of the Clyde Iron Works near Glasgow, at a time when the company had only two blast furnaces at work. The office of accountant, which he held, precluded him from taking any part in the manufacturing operations of the concern. But being of a speculative and ingenious turn of mind, the remarkable conversions which Iron underwent in the process of manufacture very shortly began to occupy his attention. The subject was much discussed by the young men about the works, and they frequently had occasion to refer to Fulroy's well-known book for the purpose of determining various questions of difference which arose among them in the course of their inquiries. The book was, however, in many respects indecisive and unsatisfactory, and in 1793, when a reduction took place in the company's staff, and David Mushet was left nearly the sole occupant of his office, he determined to study the subject for himself experimentally, and in the first place to acquire a thorough knowledge of assaying as the true key to the whole art of iron-making. He first set up his crucible upon the bridge of the reverberatory furnace used for melting pig-iron, and filled it with a mixture carefully compounded according to the formula of the books. But notwithstanding the shelter of a brick placed before it to break the action of the flame, the crucible generally split in two, and not unfrequently melted and disappeared altogether. To obtain better results, if possible, he next had recourse to the ordinary smith's fire, carrying on his experiments in the evenings after office hours. He set his crucible upon the fire on a piece of fire-brick, opposite the nozzle of the bellows, covering the hole with coke and then exciting the flame by blowing. This mode of operating produced somewhat better results, but still neither the iron nor the cinder obtained resembled the pig or scoria of the blast furnace, which it was his ambition to imitate. From the irregularity of the results and the frequent failure of his crucibles, he came to the conclusion that either his furnace or his mode of fluxing was at fault, and he looked about him for a more convenient means of pursuing his experiments. A small square furnace had been erected in the works for the purpose of heating the rivets used for the repair of the steam-engine boilers. The furnace had for its chimney a cast-iron pipe six or seven inches in diameter, and nine feet long. After a few trials with it, he raised the heat to such an extent that the lower end of the pipe was melted off, without producing any very satisfactory results on the experimental crucible, and his operations were again brought to a standstill. A chimney of brick having been substituted for the cast-iron pipe, he was, however, enabled to proceed with his trials. He continued to pursue his experiments in assaying for about two years, during which he had been working entirely after the methods described in books. But feeling the results still unsatisfactory, he determined to borrow no more from the books, but to work out a system of his own, which should ensure results similar to those produced at the blast furnace. This he eventually succeeded in effecting by numerous experiments performed in the night, as his time was fully occupied by his office duties during the day. At length these patient experiments bore their due fruits. David Mushet became the most skilled assayer at the works, and when a difficulty occurred in smelting a quantity of new ironstone which had been contracted for, the manager himself resorted to the bookkeeper for advice and information and the skill and experience which he had gathered during his nightly labours, enabled him readily and satisfactorily to resolve the difficulty, and suggest a suitable remedy. His reward for this achievement was the permission, which was immediately granted to him by the manager, to make use of his own assay-furnace, in which he thenceforward continued his investigations, at the same time that he instructed the manager's son in the art of assaying. This additional experience proved of great benefit to him, and he continued to prosecute his inquiries with much zeal, sometimes devoting entire nights to experiments in assaying, roasting and cementing iron ores and ironstone, decarbonating cast-iron for steel and bar-iron, and various like operations. His general practice, however, at that time, was to retire between two and three o'clock in the morning, leaving directions with the engine-man to call him at half-past five, so as to be present in the office at six. But these praiseworthy experiments were brought to a sudden end, as thus described by himself. In the midst of my career of investigation, says he, and without a cause being assigned, I was stopped short. My furnaces, at the order of the manager, were pulled in pieces, and an edict was passed that they should never be erected again. Thus terminated my researches at the Clyde Ironworks. It happened at a time when I was interested, and I had been two years previously occupied, in an attempt to convert cast-iron into steel, without fusion, by the process of cementation, which had for its object the dispersion, or absorption, of the superfluous carbon contained in the cast-iron. An object which at that time appeared to me of so great importance, that with the consent of a friend, erected an assaying and cementing furnace, at the distance of about two miles from the Clyde works. Thither I repaired at night, and sometimes at the breakfast and dinner hours during the day. This plan of operation was persevered in for the whole of one summer, but was found too uncertain and laborious to be continued. At the latter end of the year 1798 I left my chambers, and removed from the Clyde works to the distance of about a mile, where I constructed several furnaces for assaying and cementing, capable of exciting a greater temperature than any to which I had before had access and thus, for nearly two years, I continued to carry on my investigations, connected with iron and the alloys of the metals. Though operating in a retired manner, and holding little communication with others, my views and opinions upon the rationale of iron-making spread over the establishment. I was considered forward in affecting to see and explain matters in a different way from others who were much my seniors, and who were content to be satisfied with old methods of explanation or with no explanation at all. Notwithstanding these early reproaches, I have lived to see the nomenclature of my youth furnish a vocabulary of terms in the art of iron-making, which is used by many of the iron-masters of the present day with freedom and effect in communicating with each other on the subject of their respective manufactures. Prejudices seldom outlive the generation to which they belong when opposed by a more rational system of explanation, In this respect, time, as my Lord Bacon says, is the greatest of all innovators. In a similar manner, time operated in my favour in respect of the black-band ironstone. The discovery of this was made in 1801, when I was engaged in erecting for myself and partners the Calder ironworks. Great prejudice was excited against me by the ironmasters and others of that day in presuming to class the wild coals of the country. As Black Band was called, with ironstone fit and proper for the blast furnace. Yet that discovery has elevated Scotland to a considerable rank among the iron making nations of Europe, with resources still in store that may be considered inexhaustible. But such are the consolatory effects of time that the discoverer of 1801 is no longer considered the intrusive visionary of the laboratory, but the acknowledged benefactor of his country at large and particularly of an extensive class of coal and mine proprietors, and iron-masters, who have derived, and are still deriving, great wealth from this important discovery, and who, in the spirit of grateful acknowledgment, have pronounced it worthy of a crown of gold, or a monumental record on the spot where the discovery was first made. At an advanced period of life, such considerations are soothing and satisfactory. Many, under similar circumstances, have not, in their own lifetime, had that measure of justice awarded to them by their country to which they were equally entitled. I accept it, however, as a boon justly due to me, and as an equivalent in some degree for that laborious course of investigations which I had prescribed for myself, and which, in early life, was carried on under circumstances of personal exposure and inconvenience, which nothing but a frame of iron could have supported. They atone also, in part, for that disappointment sustained in early life by the speculative habits of one partner, and the constitutional nervousness of another, which eventually occasioned my separation from the Calder Works, and lost me the possession of extensive tracts of black ironstone, which I had secured while the value of the discovery was known only to myself. Mr. Mushet, Published the results of his laborious investigations in a series of papers in the Philosophical Magazine, afterwards reprinted in a collected form in 1840 under the title of Papers on Iron and Steel. These papers are among the most valuable original contributions to the literature of the iron manufacture that have yet been given to the world. They contain the germs of many inventions and discoveries in iron and steel, some of which were perfected by Mr. Mushet himself. While others were adopted and worked out by different experimenters. In 1798 some of the leading French chemists were endeavouring to prove by experiment that steel could be made by contact of the diamond with bar-iron in the crucible, the carbon of the diamond being liberated and entering into combination with the iron, forming steel. In the animated controversy which occurred on the subject, Mr. Mushet's name was brought into considerable notice one of the subjects of his published experiments having been the conversion of bar-iron into steel in the crucible, by contact with regulated proportions of charcoal. The experiments which he made in connection with this controversy, though in themselves unproductive of results, led to the important discovery by Mr. Mushet of the certain fusibility of malleable iron at a suitable temperature. Among other important results of Mr. Mushet's lifelong labours, The following may be summarily mentioned. The preparation of steel from bar iron by a direct process, combining the iron with carbon. The discovery of the beneficial effects of oxide of manganese on iron and steel. The use of oxides of iron in the puddling furnace in various modes of appliance. The production of pig iron from the blast furnace, suitable for puddling, without the intervention of the refinery and the application of the hot blast to anthracite coal in iron smelting. For the process of combining iron with carbon for the production of steel, Mr. Mushet took out a patent in November 1800, and many years after, when he had discovered the beneficial effects of oxide of manganese on steel, Mr. Josiah Heath founded upon it his celebrated patent for the making of cast steel, which had the effect of raising the annual production of that metal in Sheffield from three thousand to one hundred thousand tons. His application of the hot blast to anthracite coal, after a process invented by him and adopted by the Messrs Hill of the Plymouth Iron Works, South Wales, had the effect of producing savings equal to about twenty thousand pounds a year at those works. And yet, strange to say, Mr. Mushet himself never received any consideration for his invention. The discovery of titanium by Mr. Mushet in the hearth of a blast-furnace in 1794, would now be regarded as a mere isolated fact, inasmuch as titanium was not placed in the list of recognised metals until Mr. Wollaston, many years later, ascertained its qualities. But in connection with the fact, it may be mentioned that Mr. Mushet's youngest son, Robert, reasoning on the peculiar circumstances of the discovery in question, of which ample record is left, has founded upon it his titanium process, which is expected by him eventually to supersede all other methods of manufacturing steel, and to reduce very materially the cost of its production. While he lived, Mr. Mushet was a leading authority on all matters connected with iron and steel, and he contributed largely to the scientific works of his time. Besides his papers in the Philosophical Journal, he wrote the article Iron for Napier's supplement to the Encyclopaedia Britannica and the articles Blast Furnace and Blowing Machine for Reese's Cyclopaedia. The two latter articles had a considerable influence on the opposition to the intended tax upon iron in 1807, and were frequently referred to in the discussions on the subject in Parliament. Mr. Mushet died in 1847. End of chapter 8